6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Well, we're going to go into the Word of God, so let's always do that with prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this opportunity. We ask you, Father, to open our hearts and lives to your Word and your Word to our hearts and lives, that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior as we commit the coming hour and ourselves into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Well, having gone through a tedious introduction, let's jump right into chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And uh, as you look at the epistles of the New Testament, uh, it's interesting that there are three of them that are a trilogy on Habakkuk to 4, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, as we study those three epistles. And uh, Habakkuk 2.4 is, in each of those three, they become a trilogy on Habakkuk uh, 2.4, which says the just shall live by faith. Who are the just? Well, that's what the book of Romans deals with. In Romans 1.17, this is quoted. Uh, How shall they live? That's what the book of Galatians deals with, call out of religious externalism. And they shall live by faith. And that's, of course, Hebrews. With the, uh, in Hebrews 10.39, this verb, uh, verse is quoted, and then you have the hall of faith that follows and so forth. It's interesting that these epistles that we sometimes take as individuals are actually part of a pattern. And here is a trilogy on Habakkuk 2.4. And that implies, by the way, that Paul wrote all three. A lot of people don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. You really won't understand the book of Hebrews until you discover who really wrote it and why. But in any case, the main point is that there's a pattern here. The Holy Spirit's in control. These were practical letters written by Paul to solve certain problems, and yet we see the fingerprints on the Holy Spirit of how it's organized. So they became the battle battle cry of the Reformation, if you recall, and so forth, and changed the history of the world, actually. Well, let's take a look at the book of Colossians. That was written about the same time as Ephesians, as we mentioned before. Ephesians is on the church, sometimes called the body of Christ. Colossians is on Christ himself as the head of the body. Ephesians, the prophets, Hebrews, the uh, priest, and uh, Colossians, the king. And here again, we notice that three of these epistles form a pattern. So I'm always fascinated by this architecture because that uh, isn't something that Paul himself may have been conscious of, but the Holy Spirit is certainly guiding And it's interesting, when we study the Bible carefully with computers and so forth, we discover that the Torah has all kinds of mathematical properties that dissolve if you take one letter out of it. You begin to realize not only did did God give the Torah to Moses, he gave it to him letter by letter. And as you start to see the structure here in the New Testament, we're conscious of design. But in any case, 
We talked about the basic structure of this epistle of, uh, to the Colossians. Uh, doctrine declared in chapter 1 and uh, the gospel message. And we're, uh, we'll be going through the first two of those. And uh, chapter 2, still doctrinally, the danger of Christ's preeminence being defended against those dangers. And uh, we'll deal with that, of course, in subsequent sessions. And then finally, the last two chapters being the practical application of all of that. But in this coming session, we're going to focus on the first 14 verses of the epistle. So let's just jump in and actually deal with the text. Finally, huh? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. Thirteen New Testament epistles begin with his name. And he also wrote the epistle of the Hebrews. And uh, for very good reasons, didn't sign it. And uh, that also is consistent with its theme, but that's a whole other study. The 14th, we believe, is written by Paul, so there's 14 by Paul. And uh, incidentally, some Messianics especially get a little uncomfortable with Paul. Let's not lose sight of the fact that Peter himself authenticates Paul and refers to Paul's letters as Scripture, which is interesting, interesting. And so uh, let's keep that in mind. So, uh, and so again, like uh, Paul is associated with Timothy here, his protege of sorts, and uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that the New Testament got its word probably from the Hebrew salah, which means descent. It means the sent one is technically what it means. That term actually is a legal term, strangely enough, implying authorized representation. And uh, as in the modern law of agency, one sent was held to be equivalent to the sender himself in a legal sense. And of course, that's exactly what is intended here in the role. And uh, to dishonor the king's ambassador is to dishonor the king. Is, the, is sort of the underlying thought here uh, in both the Old and New Testament, it's, it, interestingly enough. Apostle of Jesus Christ. And uh, it has secondary usages, but it primarily deals with those who are directly commissioned as apostles by the risen Lord. We use that term apostle sometimes a little more broadly, but that in its denotative sense is really what it is intended to convey. And so he exercised uh, the function of an apostle by the will of God directly. And of course, the book of Acts details that. Now, Timothy was often with Paul, young fellow that uh, Paul really adopts in a sense. He had a Gentile father, we learned from Acts 16, but his mother and grandmother were godly Jewesses, and uh, he learned the Old Testament scriptures from childhood. And uh, he, Paul picks him up on his second missionary journey uh, at Lystra, and uh, because he was well spoken of, and so Paul takes him under wing. And so he disciples him and, and wrote two of his last letters. His final letters were written uh, to Timothy, guiding him and uh, instruction. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which art Colossa, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that uh, to the saints and faithful brethren, is that redundant or are they distinctive? And uh, are they different? Well, a saint is someone that's born into it. You can't join that club. You have to be born into it, right? And uh, faithful brethren, of course, is the response to that call. So you can split hairs here and say that they're not exactly identical. 
We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, this is interesting because he's praying for them, and yet these are people he probably had not met. A few he knew, of course, but that, that, that precipitated the letter. But it's interesting. Um, when Paul learns that people uh, come to the Lord, it lengthened his prayer list. He was very, very uh, diligent in his prayer life. And that's part of what we're going to get into here. The prayers of Paul. It's worth your while to take some time sometime and study his prayers. They carry very important lessons. And uh, when compared to the Lord's Prayer, they provide an index to the way Christ's instruction, after this manner, pray ye, as they were applied in the early church. And uh, they have a pattern that's worth understanding. They usually start with initial thanksgiving, and then that goes into a petition uh, and, uh, and uh, into a paean of praise of the exalted Christ. But he continues, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all saints, of your faith in Christ Jesus, faith in a person, not a system. It's faith in Christ, not a faith in some kind of doctrine or philosophy. That's Paul starting right up front here to put Christ forward. That's what we're all about. Our relationship with a person. The person of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, some people say, well, you have to have faith, as if that somehow instinctively is useful. No, you have to have that. It's what you have faith in that's critical. It's not an abstraction. You are relying on something. What is your faith in? It needs to be in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, so, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, where have ye heard before in the word of truth, uh, in the uh, word of truth of the gospel. Now, I want you to notice that faith, love, and hope are all linked up. There's a trilogy here that we want to dwell on a little bit. Faith, hope, and love are intimately linked with each other. And uh, obviously the gospel was defined for us in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. You know, it's interesting when you study the first four verses... Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, which defines the gospel. We, what is the gospel? We all use that term, good news. Well, no, specifically what it is. It? And Paul defines it for there, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scripture. That's the gospel. You know, what's interesting about that is um, it doesn't make any mention of His teachings. Well, He's a great teacher, yeah, but that's not the gospel. That he was a faithful, um, uh, 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 that he, an that he, uh, example of some kind, that he did miracles. All those things are not in Paul's definition of the gospel. What is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. He didn't just disappear. He died for our sins according to Scriptures. He fulfilled a hundred different specifications on that cross. That's what makes the... The, the, the issue of the, the movie The Passion captures that, uh, that event in its gruesome detail. But the point is, the specifications are very precise. They were laid out before the foundation of the world. And uh, so, the gospel. How he died for our sins according to scriptures. That he was buried. Only Paul emphasized that because he's going to tie that into baptism. And thirdly, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, when Paul says the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. He died, that he was raised according to, uh, raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Where in the Old Testament do you find the third day defined? 
as his specification for resurrection. Well, the story of Jonah, Jesus links that. Well, that's fair. There's three other places, and I'll leave it to you to dig those out as a student assignment. There's three other places where in the Old Testament it predicts that a, a well-taught rabbi would understand that on the third day he would raise again. So, in any case, uh, and uh, he defines truth in John 17, and of course, Satan being a liar is, uh, is uh, so deemed by Christ himself in John chapter 8. But uh, where have ye heard before in the word of truth? What Paul's saying is this is before the false teachers were on the surface. So that's what's underlying this time. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, where have ye heard before in the word of truth of the gospel? Okay, we could go ahead and spend, a, we could spend an hour on each one of those topics, but we'll move on here. Um, see, false teachers, you know, something else that's incident here. False teachers do not take their message to the world. They go to where the gospel's already gone and try to lead believers astray. It's interesting how many people will ring your doorbell to give you some new truth when they discover you're a Christian. You see, and uh, see, the, the false teachers have no good news for sinners. No, no good news for sinners. Now, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, reserved, that hope that's set aside for you, now, it's interesting, the tense of that verb indicates that this hope has once and for all been reserved so that nothing can take it from you. There's a lot of comfort in that, by the way. We can spend a lot of time on that. If you have any doubts about that, put in your notes Romans chapter 8. Start about verse 28 and just read to the end of the chapter. And anytime you're down, anytime you're kind of unsure, uncertain, just go to Romans chapter 8, start at verse 28, read to the end of the chapter, and you cannot feel bad after going through that tour de force on there. And I, I actually put a tab in my Bible. I ch check it about once a day to make sure it's still there where it starts, you know. Go, go into that, okay. So we're guarded for glory, okay. Now it says for the hope, which is later what hope are we talking about? That's a glib word, the hope. What hope are we talking about? The second coming. In Titus, the term the blessed hope comes from Titus, comes from a reference to what? His second coming. That's the hope we're talking about. There's not a worthwhile thing to hope for. No, that's the blessed hope. That's the key thing. And uh, so no one can fully appreciate the gospel if they leave out that particular aspect. We look for a king, and he's uh, soon coming to return. And that's the, that's the kingdom we're all about. Anyway, this little trilogy of uh, faith, hope, and love is a favorite of Paul's. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 Thessalonians elsewhere. And also Peter. They both lean heavily on this little trilogy of faith, hope, and love. What is faith? That's the soul looking upward towards God. What is love? Looking outward to others. And what is hope? That looks forward to the future. That's a way to look at the, 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 a paradigm, if you will, of those three. The faith rests on the past work of Christ. It's a done deal. He's completed it. It's finished. You can't add to it. Love works in the present. Love is a now thing. And uh, hope anticipates the future. So it's a past, present, and future situation here too. Okay. So without faith, it's impossible to please God. We learn from Hebrews 11.6. And hope does not disappoint us. Romans hammers in chapter 5. But of faith, hope, and love, which is the greatest of these? Anyone? Good for you. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13, the grace of these of love. So, 
Faith is past, content with historical facts. Faith comes from the content of past events, knowing the, knowing the past, knowing what, what's happened for you. Love is, is the present. That's the emblem of our calling. That's how people should identify you as a Christian. By your love, you should be known. And uh, by the way, do you pray for leaders with whom you do not agree? I find that hard. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, right? And, uh, and of course, uh, the, the, the climactic order in 1 Corinthians we've just re referenced there. And of course, hope is in the future. Continuing verse 6, we're making good progress here. We've got six of our 14 verses behind us here. Which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. You can use this verse if you wanted to, to establish that even in Paul's day, the gospel had been carried to the ends of the earth. Especially when we compare this to verse 23 of this chapter. Small point, but I'll throw it out there to stir up some controversy among you. And uh, if you were going to give a gift that would be suitable to the whole world, what would you give? Books? Food? Clothing? Money? How about John 3.16? That's the gift, the ultimate gift for the world. And if you don't know which one it is, I'll let you look it up. Okay, well, cool. Uh, John Selden was a leading historian and legal authority in England, and he regarded for his learning, he had a, a large personal library of over 8,000 volumes, and as he was dying, he said to Archbishop Usher, quote, I have surveyed most of the learning that is among the sons of men, and my study is filled with books and manuscripts on various subjects, but at present I cannot recollect any passage out of all my books and papers whereon I can rest my soul. Save this from the sacred scriptures, quote, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, close quote. So that's a testimony. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. Now here's the reference to Epaphras we've talked about in the introduction a little bit. Um, he's, his, his outstanding characteristic, apparently, was that of fervency and prayer. It's interesting how many people are remembered as prayer warriors. Uh, this was written about 60 to 62 A.D. In 62 A.D. is when James was martyred. Do you know what James, the brother of our Lord, what his nickname was? Anyone know what James's nickname was? They called him Old Camel Knees. <laughs> because he spent so much time in prayer. Anyway, Paphras was in Rome with Paul. He called him a fellow prisoner, which implies he was with Paul in prison. Not necessarily imprisoned, but voluntarily joining Paul in his situation. Now, Paphras is a shortening of Epaphroditus, that's referred to in the Philippian letter and in a couple of places. And uh, it could be the same person or it might be a, because it was a common name in that day. And uh, for what that's worth. Okay. And you also learned of Paphras, our dear servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. Learned of. It actually, the word actually means discipled by. Discipled by him. That's so used in, in other references. Uh, the word disciple is used 260 times in both Gospel and Acts. Uh, 
retaken under wing and trained, if you will. To learn as a, as a disciple is 25 times the New Testament. What does that really mean? Learning by living. Learning by living. And that's what the fellowship in the local church is all about. Not just to be a witness, but to make disciples. That implies a program. That implies supervision. That implies someone really caring and taking, taking you under wing. Who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Faith cometh by hearing, Paul reminds us in Romans 10, 17. We learn to walk by what? By faith. We learn to work by faith. Each one of these has references, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, and so on. And faith, of course, gives power to prayer in Luke 17. And faith is our shield against Satan's darts and the armor of God in Ephesians 6, who has also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Love is the evidence of salvation. Love is the evidence of salvation. And uh, see, doctrinal correctness will never atone for a lack of love. And that is the Lord's message in his letter to the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2. They were very strict on doctrine. Paul had visited the Ephesian elders and uh, warned them that there will be wolves in the flock and to guard against that in Acts chapter 20. When Jesus writes the letter to the Ephesians, they apparently did that well. You don't tolerate them that are, um, that say they're apostles that are not. So they got their doctrinal thing straightened out. But he says, nevertheless, I have something against you. You've lost your first love. They're so busy on the business of the king, they had no time for the king. We've got to guard against that ourselves, that we don't get so busy that we don't have just time for fellowship with them in prayer. Doctrinal correctness will never atone for a lack of love. And uh, it's interesting, this is the only verse in this epistle that mentions the Holy Spirit explicitly. And it is in connection with love, interestingly enough. See, the Holy Spirit never speaks of himself, we're told. In, uh, and, and this is in contrast with Ephesians, where it's all through there. So your prayer life. You know, it's unlikely that any other writer has given us as much insight into our own prayer life as is contained in the following verses. We're going to have some verses here which will give us a glimpse into Paul's prayer life. Verses 9 through 11 will set forth the blessings for which Paul prays, and 12 to 14, the list for which he gives thanks. And they're each different. And some are not forfeitable, and some are blessings for which we need to pray daily. And uh, let's look at these. Verse 9. For this cause, Paul says, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. That's interesting. He did, these are people he hadn't met. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, that they had become Christians, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. With the knowledge. Epignosis. And uh, that act, the term actually in the Greek means a super. Gnosis is knowledge. Epignosis is super knowledge, if you will. And Paul is deliberately using this term in contrast to the Gnostics, which claimed that they had superior knowledge. No, your superior knowledge is what Paul, is, is what Paul can boast about, because it comes from Christ. And it's a coined word, if you will. And uh, it's the keynote of Paul's reply to the conceit of Gnosticism. And uh, the, the cure for these intellectual upstarts is not ignorance, not obscurantism, but more knowledge of the will of God. That's the way you eclipse that, really, in effect. 
and all, with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We're talking spiritual wisdom, Sophia in the Greek. It's used six times in this epistle. And it really refers to the practical knowledge which comes from God. And so James uh, 1, 5 and other places. Wisdom and spiritual understanding, synesis, which is also used in chapter 2 in Colossians, which speaks of clear analysis and decision-making in applying this knowledge to various problems. So they're closely related, but yet still distinctive. See, the false teachers, in contrast, offered only the appearance of wisdom, uh, which captivated their minds and lives in legalistic regulations. But true spiritual wisdom is both stabilizing and liberating, not putting them in bondage, which is really what they were doing. Truth is not learned through intellect alone. And Paul emphasizes neither an abstract intellectualism nor an occult experience in powers and such, uh, but, but rather a thorough knowledge of God's will in accordance with his wisdom and perception, which he goes on with here. And uh, now in using these terms, Paul is deliberately picking up the language, the vocabulary, if you will, of the Gnostics. But he turns the meaning of those words against his false teachers. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That should be one of our prayers, right? To increase the knowledge of God. That ye might walk worthy. Walking worthy of your vocation. Ephesians 4 deals with that. Walking worthy of the gospel. Philippians 1. Walking worthy of God, 1 Thessalonians 2. These are common themes in all of Paul's letters. Faith is understanding's step, and understanding is faith's reward, according to Augustine. Good quote. The end of all knowledge is conduct. That's Lightfoot's approach. And I think that's a, the end of all knowledge is conduct. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 